Theresa May tells Europe Putin is public enemy number one. Made in Russia, we talk to a top chemical weapons expert about Novichok. You can see how things were processed by working back sometimes. It's quite difficult, but it's possible. Does Britain take its homeland defence seriously enough? And the Red Arrows crash. What happens next? Prime Minister Theresa May has warned the rest of Europe that Britain's fight with Russia concerns all 28 countries under the EU and NATO banner. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has gone what some people would say a step too far by saying President Putin aims to use the World Cup in the same way as Hitler used it in 1936. Well... Has his megaphone rhetoric gone too far? Paul Rogers is Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and joins me now along with BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Christopher, uh, are we hearing the sort of language that we associate with 5am tweets from Washington, do you think? I think there are a lot of people who would say they understand exactly what the Prime Minister is saying, that she is in fact not saying, listen, uh, the Russians desperately did this what she is saying it's the sort they did the sort of drug or the, the sort of uh, a chemical that's being used it could have been the Russians and that's very careful you, you should you should sort of close that down what is very very strange is the way that the Prime Minister fell for a setup in a common select committee where one of the members likened what was going on with Hitler's uh, rally at the uh, in 1936 and the, pri- uh, the, the foreign secretary said, oh, yes, more or less, uh, this is the way Putin is behaving. Now, this is not the way you do diplomacy, because eventually, as we're all saying, eventually you have to do deals with your enemies, not with your friends. And this is going to an extreme that some people, for example, in Europe at the moment saying, yes, we can see what he's saying. But in the long term, those same people in Europe, countries that you want to support you, and without the European Union and NATO countries supporting you, you don't get very far in what's going on at the moment. Uh, they'll be saying, hang on, this is not the language that solves problems. This is the language that uh, perpetuates them. Professor uh, Paul Rogers, of peace studies, I mean, how would you interpret this kind of rhetoric you're hearing at the moment? I think the rhetoric on both sides is very dangerous. Uh, I, I think in particular the, the, fr- the phrase that Boris Johnson used was pretty appalling. The Russians lost 20 million people because of the Nazis, uh, and essentially it is far deeply embedded in the Russian psyche than the Second World War is in the British psyche, what they call the Great Patriotic War. And I think there will be something approaching hatred of Johnson for using this connection. Um, that is in no way exonerating Russia if it was involved in this particular very nasty incident. I'd also endorse what Christopher said. If you look at the actual terminology the, the government in Britain uses Officially, they use the term use of a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. There's no direct claim, and that was the statement agreed with Germany, France, and the United States as well. One of the complications here is that this terrible incident has got embroiled in, basically, in elections and politics on both sides. 
it was very handy for Putin in the run-up to his presidential election to point to Britain being yet another country that is anti-Russia. And I have to say that within Britain, I, I think this is partly bound up with uh, prime ministerial politics and not least the kind of almost competition for words between the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary, both of whom are known to have leadership ambitions. I think it's really unhelpful and we do need a period of, I think, a relative diplomatic calm. And for heaven's sake, let the inspectors actually do their job properly. There's another side of this, and it's only a small one, and that is that the, uh, uh, what's gone on, started in, in Salisbury, has been not necessarily a diversion, but there's an alternative discussion than Brexit. And that there is a sense that uh, if, you, if you want to go on Whitehall and talk to people, they say, oh, yes, and you put this in a Brexit context... In other words, uh, it, it's number 10 actually saying we've got to use this as much as we can. There's another aspect that's going on at the moment I think we should really think about. Um, Britain has expelled 23 people as spies, yes, who are non-registered intelligence officers to give them their proper titles. Uh, the British uh, are now giving information that's been gained by its own intelligence services to a lot of other countries... Uh, countries that have got non-registered intelligence officers from Russia working in those countries and giving them the opportunity, if they want it, to start turfing one or two out. Uh, and this rages right across Europe. Mm. It also includes the so-called five, the Five Eyes group of intelligence uh, of nations, which includes Australia, New Zealand uh, and the United Kingdom. Paul, Paul and Rogers. this is very, very important because that could disrupt... Uh, the, the, the Russian intelligence gathering system for perhaps a decade and that will come back with the sort of retaliation not just by kicking people out but in other aspects that we haven't even thought of. Paul Rogers, Christopher Lee, stay with us. Now Russia's ambassador to London says the UK government has provided no proof of Moscow's alleged involvement in the nerve attack in Salisbury. Alexander Yakovenko is suggesting the UK had stores of Novichok before the attack on a former Russian spy. So why is the government so sure the Novichok chemical came from Russia? Well, Dr Patricia Lewis is the researcher Director for International Security at Chatham House and previously Director of the UN Department that looked at chemical weapons proliferation. She's spoken to SITREP producer Gisela Waldron. The Novichok agents were developed in the late 80s and early 90s, as far as we can ascertain, in Russia and um, were never declared as a chemical weapon because they were never weaponized or stockpiled in large quantities. Uh, but they were revealed by a Russian scientist when, after the end of the Cold War and after the uh, negotiation of the Chemical Weapons Treaty uh, was uh, achieved. And, and, um, and that's how we learned about them. And the formula has been released as well. And some of the processes, I think, are well understood. And so people could then defend against it uh, through that process. So if people know about it from other countries, why do we still think it's Russia? Under the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, these agents are prohibited because all chemicals that cause injury, death um, and can be weaponized are prohibited by the convention. But in order to manage all chemicals, there are then these things called Schedule 1 lists and Schedule 2 lists and Schedule 3 lists. And Schedule 1 are the really nasty um, toxic chemicals like sarin, like taboon, etc. Um, 
Novishok has not been, uh, the Novishok agents, there's a group of them apparently, and they have not been uh, declared by any country, but each country would be allowed to make small quantities in order to be able to defend against them. Um, so, and the, and the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, of course, has not been monitoring for Novishok. So the truth is that we've got a lot of uncertainty. Um, we can assume, I think, that every country that does have a chemical weapons defense capability has made small quantities in order to be able to test defenses, develop defenses, develop antidotes, etc. That doesn't mean they've stockpiled it, it doesn't mean they've weaponized it. That would be, if you like, the duty of a chemical defense organization. Um, but Russia, we don't know how much they developed, how what the stocks were. We have been assuming that they were under a threshold for the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And I guess that's what we're about to find out. Is it possible to work out which region of Russia or which laboratory it came from? There are ways. Um, so there are ways um, that depend a lot on processes, the way in which something was processed. And you can see how things were processed by working back sometimes. It's quite difficult, but it's possible. And it gives an indication of the facility where it might have been made. And then there are other ways um, that depend on exposure to air. So if the chemical's been exposed to air and that air has been contaminated with, for example, a particular chemical from an industrial plant or a particular pollen from the region, that can often pinpoint a region uh, very well. And we've used that technique, it's called high resolution trace analysis. Uh, scientists have used that technique to identify tiny, tiny trace amounts of things, for example, in nuclear samples. Uh, so this could be also done uh, in order to trace back. It would have depended on these substances or their precursors being exposed to the air at some point. So the people that carried out the attack might have known that it could be traced? They might well have known it could be traced. Um, and um, they might not have cared about that, depending who they were. Um, or they might have wanted to communicate that, depending who they were. So why do you think this was used, this particular chemical was used, and why now? The answer is I have no idea. Um, it's, it's a particularly um, nasty chemical. Um, some countries have been trying for years to get it listed on the Schedule 1 list for the Organisation for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons and have not yet been able to achieve that. I think this is now the time to do that. Um, so that's one thing that good that could come out of this. Um, as to why now, it's very hard to explain that because we don't really understand the motivation for having used any kind of nerve agent, let alone such an unusual and such a a potent one. Uh, whether someone was trying to communicate that they have this to watch out or whether someone was trying to um, communicate that uh, they um, know who else has, I just don't know. We, we, this is all speculation. and I think we have to be very careful with speculation. Is there any chance that number 10 could have got this wrong and perhaps this attack wasn't carried out by Russians? Well, I think if they've come out with this statement that it's highly likely or it's either they're using the word responsible. So that means they either carried out the attack or they, they, they were they've somehow let some of it go. I think that's why they're using this word responsible. And, and uh, the prime minister herself said 
Um, it could be that there was a rogue element that, that sort of stole it or bought it or whatever. So that hasn't been ruled out. Um, I'm assuming that they have other information on which they're basing this. And you heard um, the Foreign Secretary recently uh, talk about uh, Russia having stockpiled some of this. Now, that's that's a big word to use, um, and it would depend on the amount as to whether it was, um, you know, amount that was required for defensive purposes only, in which case it's it's allowed, or whether it's an amount that could be used for offensive capability, in which case it would not be allowed under the convention. So I think we we've got a lot of, of questions to do, but uh, questions to answer. But I think that most likely they have other bits of information that they cannot release. And I think part of the problem that they've got with this is that they are having to, first of all, protect their sources and protect their methods. Um, but they are also, I think, um, trying to um, see what else comes out uh, from uh, these, if you like, the information vacuum that's there at the moment and whether or not people know more than they're letting on. That was Dr. Patricia Lewis from Chatham House. Still to come, tributes have been paid to the RAF corporal who died when a Red Arrows hawk crashed in North Wales. But how will the crash be investigated? It's a year since five people, including a police officer, were killed in the Westminster terror attack. Defence Minister Tobias Elwood, who is an army reservist, was praised for his attempts to save PC Palmer's life. I was a reservist. I am a reservist and I was in the regular forces as well. You do the, the, the manual aptitude tests uh, that everybody's familiar with and it's that that actually gave me the confidence to step forward. Anybody in the military will know that if they were there, they probably would have done the same thing as well and uh, so it's very kind of what people have said but I'm also haunted by the fact that I found somebody with a pulse and very sadly um, uh, you know we weren't able to save him. In the armed forces you learn to accept that death is part of, of what life, you know, we have to deal with and uh, in, in everybody who's spent any significant time in the army will you will come you will confront it you'll have to deal with it you'll have to handle it and our padres do an amazing job of doing that Similarly, the police force have their own structures too. So yes, I think we, we become, you know, with all Afghanistan and Iraq, you, you become aware of it and you, you, you learn to deal with it and learn to handle it. So is there a case for more of the general population to have some sort of military training so they can respond in an emergency or even in a national crisis? Well, Elizabeth Braw is a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Hello, Elizabeth. Um, some countries already do this, don't they? Tell us about Norway. Yes, so Norway has uh, something um, that's called Heimavernet, which translates into Home Guard, but I prefer to call it Heimavernet because Home Guard has... Um, uh, unusual connotations in, in the UK. Everybody will think of, of Dad's Army, but actually, Heimavernet is a very professional organisation. It's um, it consists of 45,000 members who are all former conscripts uh, who are then transferred into uh, Heimavernet after finishing their their conscription. It's commanded by um, the former commander of the Norwegian Special Forces, a very uh, accomplished uh, major general, and. They, uh, during peacetime or during uh, what you might call ordinary circumstances, they um, have um, um, national resilience skills, including uh, crowd control, search and rescue, uh, assisting the police. But should there be a, a warlike situation, they will take on um, tasks uh, in, in coordination with, with the active duty armed forces. 
So, so is it time for Britain to focus more on homeland defence? I mean, only this week police have been urging the public to act as counter-terrorism citizens. Well, I think so. And it doesn't even need to be uh, military training of, of the civilians because uh, the, the military skills that, that we ordinary citizens um, would need in a crisis are, are more of a resilience type. So, for example, if you or I happened to walk by uh, the Palace of Westminster during that terrorist attack, uh, we would be able to uh, assist um, uh, the police officer, Keith Palmer, who, who was attacked. We wouldn't have to wait for Tobias Elwood to turn up, who just happens to have served in the armed forces. So uh, things like that, first aid skills, um, search and rescue skills, um, skills in, in um, well, uh, for example, uh, spotting disinformation. So in a national emergency, uh, ordinary citizens like you and me would be able to tell, is this real information? What should we do? And, and also um, skills in, in how to behave if you, for example, have to evacuate your house. Mm. Uh, where do you go? How do you, how do you support yourself? What sort of food should you have at home? Uh, things like that that are relatively easy and, and, and uh, wouldn't take a lot of um, effort to, to teach citizens. Uh, well, Elizabeth, listening to you is Professor Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. Um, Paul, um, has Britain's homeland defence got better or worse in recent years? I think it's probably more or less the same. There are periods when it rather got better. The most noted example would be that difficult period between 92 and 97 when you had the provisional IRA active very much in Britain rather than just Northern Ireland and you had all the economic targeting in London and London in particular people got far more aware of their responsibilities but I'm bound to say the authorities did most of the changes there. I think the issue of straightforward resilience, what Elizabeth is talking about, uh, the ability of ordinary people to respond in crises, it is always good to have people more able to do that because their own confidence in what they can do may, makes it much less likely that they will in a sense panic and do the wrong thing. So that to that level obviously it's welcome but in terms of the overall picture I don't think there's been much change in recent years except people probably are more aware on the specific issue of looking for uh, dangerous parts and that kind of thing. Christopher Lee. There, there was a discussion, um, a couple of discussions in the MOD in 83. Uh, it was only it was a coincidence it was after the Falklands War, but um, about how do you involve people without actually putting them in a uniform structure. And, and the discussion centred on two or three things, one which was local knowledge. People do things locally quite different than they would, say, in Bath and they would, let's say, in Ricelips. Uh, and that's important. They also know who is involved. They are members of things which actually can come together, even mm. if any supply of water. There's another aspect of this. Uh, at the moment, British Rail is doing something like this with announcements and, and, and advertisements and saying, look, if you see anything strange, do say so, do let us know. Mm. And this extends to having sort of cartoons of people actually walking onto a train and you look up and down the carriage and if it's a bit odd, you sort of, you might tell somebody, Think about Norway. Norway's quite a different country. Norway is a small country, and it's had, for everybody's lifetime, of course, a border, a, quite a sinister border with, with Russia, and it's become a pertinent part of it, especially during seasons where there have been exercises where you say, this is the season that the Russians would come over the, over the top and, and, and through the gap. Elizabeth Broad, do you think that's played into it? Yes, and if I can just come back to what Professor Roberts said earlier, the fact that if citizens know what to do in, in, 
in a crisis situation that creates uh, confidence and and in fact i would argue it's it uh, becomes a deterrent in itself because a, a country that might want to attack us might might then decide well actually it's not worth the effort i mean on that point it, i mean it, isn't, it, no. isn't it the kind of thing you could be learning in schools i mean now you, quite regularly schools have policies now to deal with a potential terror threat they go through threat they have drills in the schools these days isn't this the kind of education that you could be having in schools that's absolutely right. Or you could have it um, as uh, a mandatory or or voluntary uh, activity during the uh, the summer break for uh, older teenagers who are at any rate, I think, looking for something to do during the summer, and they could then earn um, sort of certificate as. Um, uh, resilient citizens or something along those lines. Mm. Elizabeth, you're speaking to us from New York, um, where you've been attending a conference for special forces. Anything interesting come out of that? Yes. So this year, so it's a special uh, operations command, which is based in Tampa, Florida, uh, that has an annual conference uh, about uh, on, on a particular issue that, that they consider to be important. This year, it's disinformation. And, and I think uh, it was very well chosen by the commander because it's something that affects uh, special forces being the, the tip of the spear, as, as they are called, as they refer to in, in the in the. Uh, U.S. Armed Forces uh, in particular. Uh, so they are the tip of the spear. They go in first. But what if they are hit by disinformation campaigns in these countries that they, they go into, whether it's a, a relatively friendly country or countries or relatively unfriendly ones? That's something they have to, to be able to address. And we're talking about relatively young guys uh, who go in on the ground, and they, they have to know how to deal with this mm. additional, um, um, you might call, threat to their operations. All right, Elizabeth, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much for your time. Elizabeth Braw, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And also Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much for joining us today. Now, tributes have been paid to the RAF engineer Corporal Jonathan Bayliss, who died this week when a Red Arrows Hawk crashed in North Wales. The pilot, Flight Lieutenant David Stark, survived. We're joined by Paul Beaver, an aviation analyst and pilot. Hello, Paul. An investigation is underway. Who carries it out and what are they looking for? Well, this is uh, something, of course, that the, uh, the Royal Air Force and the Ministry of Defence are very practised in. Um, the Military Aviation Authority, which is uh, the regulator of flying, also uh, looks at the air investigation side of it. So just as you would in a civil accident where you've got the CAA and the AAIB uh, looking at this, um, then you have a, a, a military uh, formation. So there's, there's two things. There's the board of inquiry which if you like is the the regulation but there's also that uh, other side of it which is looking at the the, the military uh, input to this so they're probably four phases that they, they would go through. Mm. Uh, Christopher Lee, the RAF has its own disciplines it copes with the instance itself and the extraordinary procedures of the investigation. It does doesn't it I mean if you're in a, in, in a military environment you, a, you understand far more you 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 react in a different way and you have a procedure which actually is posted every day in the sort of orders of the day. You, you live your life that way so you understand this better. What is far more difficult is the personal side of something like this. And this is not just for the people involved in the circus in the, in, 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 in the who are on the squadron. It goes to families, it goes to what people think and it, it, it can hang over and that discipline that, that you have in the services is, is, is particularly important to have a, a, a realistic uh, uh, sort of idea of what's going on and how you react to it.
Paul, have you ever come across this in your career at yeah, all? Yeah, so, um, so you know, the, uh, what happens now is that there's an administrative phase. A, a senior officer is appointed, subject matter experts. They'd be an engineering officer, for example. They'd be a pilot. They'd probably be a former leader of the Red Arrows. That sort of thing will, will be put together um, to look at this. Um, and they then will, will be looking um, at all of the the documentation, so logbooks, the aircraft logbook, the pilot's logbook, medical records, safety briefs, the sign-off on, on whether or not uh, uh, this air, uh, uh, the safety checks were carried out on the aircraft, etc. They'll put together not only military experts, but they bring in industry as well, BAE Systems made the aircraft Rolls-Royce, uh, the engines, Martin Baker, the ejection seats, of course. And, and then they'll sift and going through that information, establish a timeline. This is a very short flight, 116 seconds, or, or, or I've heard quoted, um, they'll do it by uh, you know, a, a really detailed uh, list of those, and then they determine causes. They don't determine blame, it's the causes they're interested in, um, because they want to know, is it something that's an endemic to the aircraft, or can you actually stop it again? Is there, a, is there something, is there a practice? Normally with accidents, there's more than one thing that's gone wrong. It's interesting, you, you, you can have something happening. And a guy standing there, let's say, by uh, on the runway or by the runway, and he sees something, and he's the expert, an absolute expert, drives one of these planes himself, and he says, that's obvious. When it comes to the inquiry, it ain't obvious. There's always something in an inquiry which says nobody could have seen that or sometimes could have even foreseen foreseen that. And that's, and that's why it needs to have that sort of, uh, that, that, that strong influence that Paul's suggesting because you will find something which in the future you're going to make sure it's not again. Of course, the, the Hawk Jacks, they have a good safety record, don't they? Uh, but when you have this kind of incident, it's so public and it causes mm. such a reaction amongst the public, they start asking, do we need the red arrows? Uh, you're going to have all of that um, in uh, in social media um, that people are going to say yes but this is the Mark 1 it's been in service for 40 years and why aren't they using a new aircraft and that sort of thing well the answer is that this aircraft is used and used and used at three or four times a day. These, these guys are flying uh, at Scampton when they're training or at Valley, sometimes in Akrotiri. Um, they go to all sorts of places because they are the world's premier aerobatic team. So they have to train hard uh, to do this. So all the procedures are in place to, to make this happen. But we have to always remember that military flying, whether it's operational or display flying, is dangerous. You mitigate those risks by having procedures and practice. And because we've been doing it for so long, was the Red Arrow is now 50 years old or, or mm -hmm. something? You know, this is this is a long time. And because the aircraft's 40 years old, there's not a bit inside that aeroplane that's 40 years old. No, that's true. You and know, also we know been, all about it's it. Been, <laughs> it's been replaced. It's, it, the, the engineering upkeep in that is absolutely fantastic. And, and, and you know all about the aircraft. I mean, when I, when, when I was involved in flying gazelle helicopters in the army... You ever been in one, Paul? I, I, no, I don't do jets. I do helicopters. OK. You know, jets are a bit <laughs> noisy and fast. But, you know, to, to take um, Christopher's analogy is very true. If you look at our gazelles, um, that aircraft is, is going to be in service for 50 years. We know everything about it. We know where it goes wrong and when. And so you can mitigate, uh, mitigate against that risk. And that's what the guys are doing um, in these aircraft run by 22 Group. Um, this is exactly what they'll be doing. So everybody will have a view and an impact. It will be up to the Board of Inquiry to work out and sift that to come down some, some really quite simple 
typically courses. how long would it take how long is a piece of string um they'll want to get a pretty quick um uh, information out because this is ref 100 year the red arrows are central to everything that's going on um, from the 1st of April onwards. They'll want to get the boys and girls back into the air so that mm. um, you know we've got the a, display team. Yeah, as you say, a big commemorative year for the RAF, mm. but also um, you're involved in something uh, remembering the dam busters. Well, Briefly thank you for bringing that, that up. Um, 17th of May, Royal Albert Hall. We're remembering 75 years ago of the most illustrious, iconic raid uh, that uh, the Royal Air Force carried out, number 617 Squadron. Of course, reforming this month um, with the uh, the F-35. Um, and it's going to go out to 300 cinemas as well on that day. And if I can www.thedambuster75.co.uk <laughs> go on there see which cinema one day only Dan Snow and me on stage and then a, reven a regenerated movie from 1955 in 4K it's going to be brilliant OK Paul Beaver thank you very much for joining us today um, Christopher uh, the Type 45 destroyers they're getting fixed uh, well they're not getting fixed that quickly it well. sounds as that's on the forecourt. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, if you think, six, six destroyers, when they came into operation, the best air defence destroyers in the world. Uh, the trouble is down below, the engineering doesn't work. It's all going to be replaced with three main units. The first one won't be back in service properly until 2021. Uh, it's a bit sad. Somebody, somebody didn't get it right. And that is all we have time for this week. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the show as a podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. A year on from the West.